Turn back to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We've been in the study of the book of Romans for a while now. We're coming up on the end of that. Uh, We're going to look at uh, verses 15 to 18 this morning. I'm going to read 14 to 21. Just to set it in context. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that, through, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's stop there. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that illumines and applies your word to our heart. We pray for your blessing as your word is preached. Help me to preach your word in the power of the spirit. Help us to hear it as your word in the power of the spirit. Lord, work mightily in and through the preaching of your word for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Lord, we ask for it and trust for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found was blind. But now I see. Who wrote that? The Apostle Paul? No. John Newton. Imagine you knew John Newton. Maybe you grew up with John Newton. Up to age 11, he was mostly raised by his mother. His father was a, was a sailor. He, he, he was on ship. And says so he was mostly raised by his mother. And she taught him the Bible and hymns. But after she died, at age, when he was age 11, he went to live on ship. With his father. Very rough environment among the sailors. And as a young man, he was forced into naval service on a, aboard HMS Harwich. And his poor behavior got him into great trouble. And so, to be rid of him, the captain sent him to a slave ship. Where his, where his actions eventually led him to be punished by being chained on deck as a captive 
with very little provisions. But he would eventually captain a slave ship. And looking back on his life, he would attribute most of his struggles to his own debauchery and poor choices. And if you'd have been his mate during that time, his friend, if you'd have grown up with him and maybe been on ship with him, if you had known him in the midst of those the debauchery and poor choices, you would have never, ever expected him to become a great hymn writer and pastor. Many of us have that same kind of testimony. But God often takes very broken and very wicked people, wretches. Some are religious wretches and some are non-religious wretches. But God often takes very broken and very wicked people and does great things in them and then through through them for the glory of His name. John Newton was one of them. One of those unexpected outcomes. Saul of Tarsus was another. A self-righteous Pharisee. A religious wretch for whom God had a gloriously surprising plan. In his life as well. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like him. So we've been studying through the book of Romans. We've seen Paul lay out basically his desire to go to Rome. He's, he's laying out his gospel that he preaches. The gospel is the thesis statement. He's shown us how to be justified, how to be declared righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, coming to faith in Him so that we are cleansed from all of our sin and clothed in His righteousness and accepted as a child of God. He's shown us that God sanctifies those He justifies. He grows us more and more into the image of Christ by the work of His Spirit applying the Word. He's shown us His sovereign application of the Gospel such that when He got to chapter 12, verse 1, now He transitions and says, based on the mercies of God, you be living sacrifices. Living sacrifice, you see that priestly language even there. Sacrifice to, devoted to God, holy, shaped by the Word, humble, loving with genuine love. Sacrifices for the living God. And we've come through a section on unity in chapter 14, and now we're we're pressing toward the end of Romans. And we've seen God's that, that benediction in, in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We saw our identity as a church in Christ last time with verse 14, where he said, I am satisfied about you, brothers, that you are three things full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And now we're going to pick it up in verse 15 this morning. And uh, look, at, look at just three, 15, 16, 17, and 18, four verses. And uh, titled it, God's Surprising Grace. God's Surprising Grace. Main point, what we draw away from this as we look at it, God often uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish His purpose. And we see that exemplified in the life of Paul. So first, let's look at an unexpected grace. Look in verse 15. After giving those 
that great benediction and that, that statement of confidence. He says, but he said, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. In other words, he's not, he's not thinking that everything he's written is brand new to them, that they being a church in Rome would have had a familiarity with the gospel. Uh, he has re- reminded them and expanded upon these, these gospel themes. And uh, he, sa- he says, I've, been, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Because, now it says in verse 15, because of the grace that was given to me. So what he's talking about here is the grace of apostleship. Christ had mercy on me. He not only had mercy on me and saved me, he's called me to be an apostle. So Paul is giving a Rome, the Romans a bold reminder of the gospel and its application or and its implication. Their reasons... The, the reasons for this service is the grace given to him. And we've seen that when we, they're kind of, we're starting to bracket the book now. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 5, where it talks about grace and apostleship had been given to the apostle Paul. And now he's reminding them again of this grace that was given to him to be an apostle, to be an apostle, capital A, one of those who witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ and were sent on a very special mission to be his emissaries of revelation to his church through whom these men he we scripture would come and we've been talking about that in in our sunday school classes but it says this he says he says i'm i've been bold with you uh, by way of reminder because of the grace given to me and here's the unexpected part the the part that i'm talking about the unexpected nature of his apostleship to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Christ in His plan before the foundation of the world for me was for me to be a minister to the Gentiles. Why is that unexpected? It's very unexpected. Who was Paul before his conversion? Well, he was a Jew. Number one, he was a Pharisee, part of the strictest sect of the Jews, he says in, in Acts 26.5. Let me just read a verse for a couple of verses for you, Paul, about what he was and his, his transition to Christ. But he says this, he says, we are the circumcision in Philippians 3.3-5. We are the circumcision who, by worship, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now watch this, this is... Before Christ, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Why, Paul? Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, part of the strictest sect seeking to put that law into practice, blameless according to the law. So Paul was a Jew of Jews. He knew the law better or as well as anybody. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He trained at, at one, of the, one, of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest people who could have trained him, Gamaliel. He was one of the primary te- premier teachers of the law in the first century. So as we see things, the Apostle Paul, who we call the Apostle Paul now, he was a perfect candidate to be an apostle to the Jews. 
If you looked at his pedigree and as the church, if, if you, number one, they struggled to believe he was converted. But once you believe he was converted, he's like, you know, the Jews are not believing in their own Messiah. And look, this, this man has been converted. He's the perfect one to focus on the Jews and show them how Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Maybe even he can go into that group of Pharisees and convince them. That Jesus is their Messiah because every question they might ask, he will have an answer from the law. He's perfectly trained. He's gone. He's, he has a doctorate from the Jewish seminary. He would be perfect to be an apostle to the Jews. And now he's a Christian. But God. God knows better. God knows what He's called us to. He knows what is going to be most for His glory. And He knows what's going to be best for His church. If you haven't figured this out yet and you haven't been in Christ long enough to figure it out, God does not always do things the way we think would be best. He is all-knowing. We are little knowing. And many times His ways, you've heard it said, He works in mysterious ways. Well, they're, myster- they're not mysterious to Him. They're mysterious to us because we're not omniscient, holy, purely holy, righteous, wise. Fill out the list. He does not always do things the way we think would be best. He gets more glory in using us for great things in areas in which we are weak and dependent. Not in areas where we think ourselves strong and able. And if just looking on the outside at the Apostle Paul, strong in the law, familiar with the tradition, has grown up in it, being a Pharisee, you know, in our way of thinking, he's the perfect one to stay right there with the Jewish people and be an apostle to the Jews. But that's not what God did. That wasn't his plan. And notice in our verse that Paul has embraced God's plan. He says, because of the grace given to me. Grace that God has given me to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. Well, his, I mean, Peter, the rest of they, the Jews, they struggled with this transition, didn't they? You read the book of Acts. That God would would save the Gentiles just like He did the Jews and bring Jew and Gentile into one new family. Gentiles aren't less than, but part of the same body, part of the Israel of God. He said, I've written to you very boldly for your own good because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus. He's ministering Christ to the Gentiles. And he thinks of his ministry as a priestly service. Look at it. 
to be a minister of Jesus of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. The priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. How's that acceptable? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that he is pleased to be a minister to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel. What is the gospel? I hope you look at me and say, what are you talking about? You tell us every week what the gospel is. Try to do it in new and fresh ways, but we always need to hear the gospel. Believers need the gospel, as well as those who don't know Christ need to hear the gospel. So let me break it down for you this way this week. The first point of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves. Point number one, we can't save ourselves. Why? Can't I be good enough? No. Why? Because you'll never keep the law in thought, word, and deed until you're glorified. You'll never be perfect in your thoughts, always thinking the right thing and never thinking the wrong thing according to God's law, always saying the right thing and never saying the wrong thing. And we're done now, right? And always doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing. We... The, 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 the law shows us, its first ministry to us is to show us that we fall short. It's to shut our mouths so that we are before God seeing that we can't save ourselves. Because, see, you're not going to be compared with other people. You, you're going to be compared with God's law. You're going to be compared with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to stand on your own two feet, you're going to have to be as good as Jesus was. And you haven't. We've all broken His law in thought, word, and deed. We've all lived for other things besides God and not worshipped His way and dishonored His name. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus said. But we've used it flippantly. We've taken His name upon ourselves and then lived in ways that deny Him. We've used His name as a curse word. We flippantly used the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a, I had a buyer one time. I used to do a wholesale sales route. And I was sitting in the office of, a, of one of the buyers of, of a company. And, and before we started talking about products, he was wrapping up whatever it was he was working on. And then all of a sudden, he just said, Jesus Christ. And I'm not usually this quick, but when, as soon as he said that, by God's grace, right after he said Christ, I said, is Lord. And he said, what? He said, oh, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to say that in front of you. I said, well, it's not me you need to worry about. And I said it nicely. I said, you're dishonoring the name of the Lord. And, and that, God used that to convict him. See, that's just one example, not to mention unrighteous anger, looking on others with lust, desiring what's not ours, thinking it'll make us happy. We've all broken God's law. We can't save ourselves. That's why Jesus came. What did Paul say? That Jesus came to save those who are good enough. Jesus came to make up the difference between those who do their best, now He does the rest. Jesus came to save sinners. 
What is a sinner? One who has broken God's law. And one who will agree with God that they have broken God's law. Confession of sin is agreeing with God. So we can't save ourselves, but that's why Jesus came. Now, how does He save us? Well, that law we've broken, He fulfilled it in His life in thought, word, and deed. So He had a perfect righteousness. He went to the cross, took our guilt and condemnation upon Himself. So He paid our penalty so that He might credit to us His righteousness so that we might be accepted as the children of God. Christ died for our sin according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised the third day according to the Scriptures. All of it was predicted in the Old Testament. So we can't save ourselves. We are responsible for our breaking of the law. But Christ Jesus came to save sinners through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore, because He has done that, salvation is given to us as a free gift. God requires repentance and faith on the basis of Him sending His Son. And what He requires, He grants by the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to us so that we're born again and we turn and trust in Jesus. Have you come to the point in your life where you're convicted over your sin and rebellion against God? Where you saw that you needed a Savior and you couldn't save yourself and you have turned by grace and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's what God works in the hearts of those He saves. God loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes into Him, literally, shall not perish, because shall not pay their own penalty because Christ has paid it, but have everlasting life because Christ has earned it. And if you're trusting in Christ, it will be proved because if you're trusting in Christ, that means the Holy Spirit's within you working in you to bring you to faith and now to nurture you in growth and grace. So you'll growingly look like Jesus if He's in you, if the Spirit is in you. See, Paul is delighted because he already knows and he's seen it work. And he's telling the Romans, and he started us off this way, that it's the gospel that's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first then the Gentile. The gospel is the power. So he, is, he came to Corinth with weakness and trembling and fear, but he decided to preach Christ and Him crucified, and the church was born there because people were born again there. So he's delighted. He's excited. God's using him as an instrument of grace. He said, because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service to God. His priestly service as a good priest would be preparing an offering for God, one that is holy, which is according to His Word, is acceptable by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, that's the Gentiles that I've been sent to. I've been sent on this mission with the gospel. I preach the gospel and God converts them and makes them children of God and an acceptable offering, therefore, living sacrifices. We've already talked about. Chapter 12, verse 1. So Paul pictures himself as a priest. He's using the gospel as a means by which he's preparing the Gentiles as his acceptable offering to God. And therefore, Gentiles are turning from sinful idolatry to being holy, that is, sanctified, offerings fit for the service and praise of a holy God. 
So, Paul, this is, there's a note of rejoicing in these verses. He's rejoicing in God's grace of sending him where he never dreamed he would go to do what he never dreamed he would do growing up. Be a minister to the Gentiles. A fruitful minister. A fruitful priest preparing a holy sacrifice for God among the Gentiles. One that is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So that was an unexpected grace to the Apostle Paul. And he, he embraced it as grace. Not as, not as a punishment or not as a less than or not as some sort of... Uh, no, he's excited about what God's doing. And he can't wait. We're going to talk more of that as we move along. He can't wait to take this glorious gospel around the world if God enables him to people that have never, ever heard. He has a burden for those who have never heard. We'll continue talking about that next week. But let's, let's move on in this text this week to an unexpected boast to number two. Verses 17 and 18. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So Paul is proud of his work for God, but he's proud in a holy way. He's boasting. Other translations have boasting there. He's boasting in a holy way. He boasts not in himself. Look how he qualifies it. He said, I have reason to be proud. I'm seeing God make these acceptable sacrifices. I'm seeing people be converted as I preach this gospel, what is the power of God of salvation. I'm seeing people turn to Christ. My goal to present them as a sacrifice, it is working because God is working. Yes, I have to work, but God is working through me. Look at verse 18. A, the first part. He said, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So he sees himself. He sees himself. Remember, this is a grace given to him. He sees himself as an unworthy instrument, but nonetheless an instrument being used by Christ to build his church. Carpenter, no glory goes to the hammer when the carpenter builds the house. But there's a privilege there to be a human hammer where God is using you as an instrument to proclaim his gospel and see people come to Christ. But it's all God's work. It's not anything Paul ginned up. It's not anything that's happening in the strength of Paul. It's not really what he prepared for to go to the Gentiles. But God is using him. So he's boasting. When you see that, you've got to keep those verses together. He's boasting in the Lord here. He would write in 1 Corinthians 1.31, after talking about salvation being God's sovereign application of his grace in Christ, he says that so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's not breaking his advice here. He's boasting in the Lord. 
that the Lord has used him as an instrument of his gospel. Now, what has God accomplished through him? Look at this. He says, uh, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me too. There's your purpose word there. What's he accomplishing? Bring the Gentiles to obedience. Then it says by word and deed. That's Paul's word and deed. His pressing into the ministry and God using that to do this very thing. To bring the Gentiles to obedience. Simply, Christ had sent him to the Gentiles and Christ had used him to bring the Gentiles to obedience, to make them a sanctified, holy offering. I told you we're beginning to bracket the book here. But if you'll remember in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he said basically the same thing we see in these verses. He's talking about through whom? The Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the, look at this, the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, that's Gentiles, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The grace given to Paul and, and, and the apostleship given to Paul and the other apostles had a purpose in it. And that purpose was to flower into, to produce in Jew and Gentile, in God's people, the obedience that comes from faith. See, what God is working in those He saves is obedience. First, we obey the gospel by turning and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone and are justified on the basis of Christ. And then He begins to sanctify us, to produce in us a growing, joyful obedience to God. Because of His grace, it's grace-filled, it's Spirit-empowered growth in grace or obedience or pressing into this work. But Paul's saying here in Romans, at the end of Romans, the same thing. That his apostleship, what Christ has accomplished through him, was to bring the Gentiles to obedience. I mean, it's at the end of the book, too. Look in 16.26, and we'll read the whole, whole passage when we, when, in, a, in a minute. But in 16.26, he says, It has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations according to the command of our eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. God works to bring us to repentance and faith in Christ and then to grow us in joyful obedience. If he's at work in us at all. The purpose of God in the application of the gospel is to make living sacrifices to bring about the obedience of faith. To not just justify the believing sinner, but also to sanctify them. True salvation. Listen to me. True salvation always produces a growing, joyful obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. True salvation always produces grief over sin and a turning from it. 
renewed and enabled, right? Renewed in the whole man and enabled more and more to die into sin and live into righteousness. That's our definition of sanctification. Look at me. If you do not grieve over and hate your sin, sin as God defines it, and if you do not love and strive after righteousness, you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit's salvation. See, we don't obey in order to be saved. We grow in obedience because we have been saved and are being saved. We have been justified and are being sanctified. The Spirit of God cannot come to live in your heart and it make no difference in your life. The Spirit of God cannot give you a new heart and it make no difference in your life. He shed His love abroad in our hearts. And the love, what is the love of God, John tells us, is to keep His commandments and His commandments aren't burdensome. So, in the lost. Now listen, if, if you were converted as a child and you don't remember this, you, all you remember is that you, are, you, are, you do grieve over sin and you are turning, you know, trying to follow and obey Christ because you love Him, not in order to get Him to love you. But have you experienced a conviction of sin? And had that cry of repentant faith, that grief of soul, God, you remember the tax collector and the, and the, the Pharisee and the tax collector beat his breast, wouldn't even look up to heaven. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you come to the place where you've seen that you deserve condemnation? You should pay it justly, but also that Christ, in Christ there's mercy available so that you have turned and trusted Christ. And whereas you used to love sin, you now hate it. And whereas you used to hate righteousness, you now love it. And you're pursuing that. That means He's sanctifying you. See, conversion is not just faith. True conversion is is a coin. And the two sides of conversion are repentance and faith. It's a repentant faith if we have real faith. So God brings us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and He cleanses us from sin and He clothes us in His righteousness. He gives us a new heart that works toward obedience. He accepts us as His children and at that point He begins to sanctify us and He will finish that work. He will glorify us. He will finish the work. But one of the reasons the churches are so filled with people who don't give any evidence of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ is because cheap grace has been preached. Repentance hasn't been mentioned. The call to following the Lord Jesus Christ is not given. You just pray a simple prayer and you're assured that you're a child of God and we'll baptize you so we can rack up the numbers and be great in the convention. Without repentance... Jesus said, you will all likewise perish. Paul's priestly ministry, his grace of apostleship, is being used by God to bring about this growing joyful obedience in the lives of the Gentiles. Has that happened to you? God has used Paul in an unexpected way. And Paul saw himself 
as an unworthy instrument because he said it's grace that's been given to me. That pride I used to have, I don't have it anymore. I'm an unworthy instrument used by a holy God as an instrument of His grace to bring salvation to the Gentiles by which He has made them acceptable, obedient sacrifices. Chapter 12, verse 1, living sacrifices. So you see what God is doing. He's getting the most glory. He often uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish His purposes in redemption. And Paul is a shining example of that. Let's think about application for a few minutes before we stop. Number one, we're bad about this. Don't expect God to always use you where you're most comfortable and feel most prepared. I'm not comfortable with that. Good. Praise God. That's probably where He wants you. Because He's always doing two things. If He's using you to reach others, He's always sanctifying you in the process. He's showing you how great and glorious He is and how weak and needy you are, and that cross just gets bigger and bigger. God would never take a country boy who's an introvert and make him a pastor. Don't always expect God to use you where you're most comfortable and seemingly prepared. Where you see yourself as a good fit. There's no following Christ if you want to walk around in your comfort zone all the time. This is what I'm good at, so this must be how God's going to use me. Well, if that was true, Paul would have been an apostle to the Jews. And Jeff wouldn't be standing here right now. And you fill in your own blank. See, we're, we're living in a culture... Listen... It's been refreshed to me this week. We're living in a culture that's big. Some of the biggest idols are safety and comfort. We bow to safety and comfort. We think we're always supposed to be safe and comfortable. Where did you get that idea? Do you know where you live? You live in a world that's going to hell in a handbasket. That's a place of death and darkness that crucified God. The only way they could get their hands on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that will not make you comfortable if you follow him. You stop bowing to that. Maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose for you is not for you to be safe and comfortable all the time. For you to be holy and dedicated to Him, confident of His grace. Yes, forgiven by Him. Yes, made a child of God by Him. But empowered by Him to live for Him in growing measure because of His grace to you. And if you keep bowing down to safety and comfort, you're going to stand before God one day on your own and you're you're going to be anything but safe and comfortable. Be justly condemned for your sin and self-focus and sin pursuit. And failing to seek to honor Him in all that you do. And Christian, you're going to be miserable in this life if that's what you're bowing down to. 
Please don't make me comfortable all the time. And please don't make your children comfortable all the time. Make them miserable sometimes. Miserable because you're pressing into them to do the right thing. Kids are looking at me like, what the heck? You don't need to be raised to think you're all that in a bag of chips. And the world's about you. You're sinners who need the Lord Jesus Christ. And coming to faith in Christ, you need to live for Him. And that's going to take sacrifice. Oh! Raise the generation that because their candidate didn't get elected in the White House, they needed to get in a corner and cry with teddy bears in their college age. That's parents' failure right there, not those kids' failure. Comfort and safety is an illusion. Please listen to me. Face it before you stand before Him. Get before His law and get uncomfortable. Own your sin so that you turn to Him and trust in Him and rest in Him and walk with Him. And then expect Him to use you in ways that keep that going. Paul once said he had the sentence of death in himself. That he might not trust in himself, but in him who was raised from the grave. You get in trouble for, take, for pay, making people feel uncomfortable these days. That's okay with me. I want you to be converted. And I want you to grow in God's grace. And I want you to be useful instruments in His hand. Not walking around in some illusion of comfort and safety. I promise you, I pray to make you uncomfortable. Especially if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Spirit make you miserable until you find rest in Him. And then once you do, may may you be a willing sacrifice for Him. Not one who's seeking comfort. Don't expect, point number one, God to use... You where you are most comfortable and seemingly prepared. Paul's contemporaries in Jerusalem probably thought he had thrown his life away. And he had not. He had given his life to the Lord and was now living for his purpose. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. You know what? That's still true. And more and more in the culture that we're living in right now that doesn't want to hear His truth. Love people. Don't be jerks. Love them genuinely. But be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His truth. Be this kind of sacrifice for Him. And know that it's going to be uncomfortable. See, it's pride that seeks comfort and safety all. But Jesus said, you're going to be uncomfortable in this world, didn't he? In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome it for you. Don't live for comfort and safety. Live for the glory of God. If you're going to live for the glory of God, God's going to use you in ways that's both going to humble you and benefit those around you. So don't always expect Him to use you where you're most comfortable and seemingly prepared. Number two, embrace weakness and know that His grace is sufficient. See, this is related. 
But what did he say? When Paul had his thorn in the flesh and he went before the Lord three times and asked the Lord to take it away, what did the Lord say? God, I'm uncomfortable with this. Take it away. What did God say? No. No. But one of the things God said to him was that his power is made perfect in weakness. You can go read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and surrounding if you want to see where I'm getting that. But here's the point of that. His power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says God told him that he is not going to take his discomfort away because he's using it to sanctify him, that he might hope not in himself but in, in God's power. And God promised him that his power is made perfect in weakness. God uses weak people to do great things. My goodness, have you been reading your Bible? From Abraham all the way through. From Adam all the way through. Weak people who don't have it all figured out that God uses in ways he, that they would never imagine. Go read the story of Gideon. I mean, the Bible's filled with weak people that his power was at work in. And through them he did great things. So embrace your weakness and know that his grace is sufficient. Be patient in trouble. Knowing that he's using that trouble to make you like Christ. It's okay to pray to have it taken away, but just like Paul did. But, but maybe he says no like he did to Paul. Be patient. Read, read Heidelberg Catechism Question 1 on a regular basis. All things now must work for me. It will help you. So don't expect God to use you where you're most comfortable. and ex- Embrace weakness and know that His grace is sufficient. That's what we see happening in Paul. And notice Paul's note of delight. This was a grace given to me that I might be a minister to the Gentiles, that I might be used by God to make them a holy, acceptable offering, and that I might boast in Him. Not in me, but yeah, I'm proud or boasting in my work, but only because it's Him working in and through me to produce this good fruit. And I'll end on this note. I'm going to ask you again. Has God through the gospel, brought you to obedience. A growing, joyful obedience to Christ out of love for Him because of His grace in your life. Not to make yourself acceptable, but because that love that you see so many times in the gospel of those who would, who would sacrifice, wash His feet with their tears and hair and pour expensive perfume over it and all these sacrifices because they loved Him. Great Great love. Has God worked in you that love through the gospel that causes you to grow in obedience? Do you have the obedience that comes from faith? Has God worked in you a, 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 a real and a growing grief and hatred over sin and a real and a growing love and pursuit of righteousness? Are you growing in what he calls in Romans the obedience that comes from faith? I hope so. If not, and we need to talk about that, we want to do that. The last thing, here, listen to me. The last thing I want for you is for you. Go read the end of, uh, go read in, in Matthew chapter 7. 
The last thing I want for you to be one of those people who stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. These were people that made a profession of faith. They were doing a lot of flashy things in the church, but their lives were full of unrighteousness. They didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is loving for God to call me to repentance and through me to call you to repentance that you might truly, truly know him. So go away from this sermon looking to Christ, resting in God's grace, seeking it if you don't have it. But go away knowing that God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish His glorious purpose of redemption. Let us all say with Isaiah and with Paul and with John Newton, when they really got it, here I am. Send me. That's the response when we truly get a handle on His Amazing grace. Purpose to glorify Him with your words and deeds. We saw that mentioned by Paul. Your sacrifice of being an instrument in His hand will all be worth it. He will be glorified and others will be changed and we will boast in Him forever. The last verse. I quoted the first verse of Amazing Grace. The last verse says this. When we've been there... 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, with no less days to sing His praise, sing God's praise than when we first begun. No less days to boast in Him and His grace. So go away. And I'm not running you off. (laughs) Go away from this sermon with a heart that is determined to both glorify and enjoys him, enjoy him because of his surprising, amazing grace. Rest in his grace and live for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, have, have mercy on us. I pray that we, by the work of your grace in our hearts, would see all things as you see them. But certainly that we would see sin as you see it and grieve over it and repent of it. That we would see grace in in Christ as we should see and that we would turn and trust in and love and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would not expect in this life to be comfortable and safe all the time, but to be pouring ourselves out as a sacrifice on the altar of your service, as living sacrifices who have the gospel in their mouths and the joy of grace in their hearts, who seek to love you on a daily basis and grow in living for you in joyful obedience, Lord. Thank you that you use unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish your glorious purpose of redemption. Do that in us individually and bring about personal revival. Do that in Grace Church corporately and bring about corporate revival. And do that in this city, in this state, in this nation, and around this world. Revive your church that we might be a people who truly love and live for you. 